1: It sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because Rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical
2: theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable
3: with, you know, issue of people being different.
2: I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we
4: don't we don't back away from anything.
0: Welcome back to the season premiere of Broadway Bullet, season two. This is episode 101. What did everybody think of the new intro, huh? I sure like it a lot better than the old one. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of fantastic stuff for this episode. I really do think this is the best one yet. We have got three exclusive songs from Grey Gardens. Matt Cavanaugh, Aaron Davey, and composer Scott Frankel stopped by the studio for an interview and to perform the three songs that are new from the off-Broadway recording and thus didn't make it on to the off-Broadway cast recording. And that means that Broadway Bullet is the only place, other than live at the Walter Care, that you can hear these three songs. We've also got an interview with the play 6969, performing at 59 East 59th Street. We got an interview and two songs from the new musical Nerds, which debuted at the New York Musical Theater Festival, the second season, and is now going on at the Philadelphia Theater Company. We're also going to hear from the new off-Broadway play, Absolute Clarity. We got Marty Cooper back for On the Positive Side. We've got a book review of John Osborne. It's just a jam-packed episode, so we can't wait anymore to get going Let's kick right into it.
5: On the Boards.
0: The year 2007 hasn't quite yet brought about a scandal along the lines of the Mark Foley incident last year, but uh, I think the topic of email and perception and reality of who you are and who you claim to be still pervades in the public conscience, and there is a play opening at 59 East 59th Street called 6969, Appropriately. <laughs> based on a true story uh, out of England, and we've got the writer, Jordan Seavey, here with us, and Max Rosenak one of the actors from the production. How are you doing?
6: Good, how are you? Good.
0: Why don't you tell us a little bit about this um, true story that this is based on? Sure. 6969
6: is based on this true story that took place in Manchester, England, although we've moved it to America, because that's what we know a little better. And it takes place between a 16-year-old boy and a 14-year-old boy who start talking online. And the 14-year-old boy introduces the 16-year-old to a number of people, including a girl who becomes his girlfriend and stepbrother, uh, uh, someone who possibly had attacked her and caused her to move where she's currently living, and uh, then they're all caught up in a murder plot and all of the characters are killed except for the 14-year-old and the 16-year-old. It is then revealed, to give away the first uh, sort of secret of the play, Mm -hmm. that all the characters were created by the 14-year-old and the 16-year-old was just completely duped online in chat rooms and instant messages and emails. Then a 40-year-old female spy is introduced to the 16-year-old and promises him a lot of money and a job with her agency and even sex, a lot of things. If he kills the 14-year-old, um, who, who she says has a terminal brain tumor anyway, so it would be doing him a favor. He, if the 16-year-old says, I can't kill my friend, but eventually... Through the course of a 2 act play, he is convinced to carry through this crime and uh, does stab the 14-year-old, who in real life actually lived, although he barely made it.
0: Sounds like way too much drama for it's, a true story.
6: <laughs> it's a really—it's like the granddaddy of all internet identity frauds. <laughs> basically, it's—it's almost—it's almost too bizarre to be true, which is why it probably is true. <laughs>
0: And Max, you've been with the show since a, a stage reading a year ago? Yeah, since uh,
7: we did a, a reading of it at the Drama Bookshop in uh, January of 2006. Six. Six. Yep. So, yeah.
0: Now, I understand that you kind of changed a little bit about the play and, like, where this is revealed mm-hmm. as to what the 14-year-old is doing. Yep, The um, the original
6: ending of the play, we, we attempted to have the audience suspend disbelief and, and think that all of these characters, including the spy uh, in the second act, was uh, uh, were actual people. And so it was revealed at the very end that they were all the 14-year-old and then that the 14-year-old wanted his own suicide through way of murder, basically. And then we... I mean, we pulled it off in the workshop, but, you know, lots of audience members knew halfway through, lots didn't, and we just said, wouldn't it be better if everyone knew at the end of the first act? So we did try to sort of fool them like the 16-year-old was fooled through the first act, but then uh, we thought it would be really interesting if we saw, this is another huge change, if we saw the the actor who plays the 14-year-old also play the 40-year-old spy in the second act. So it's just the two of them on stage, but of course the 16-year-old still thinks he's just talking to this
0: woman. (laughs) Huh, naive, well, <laughs> unfortunately. Now, Max, uh, you're going to do a quick monologue from the show yeah. here before we go on. Do you want to set the scene up at all?
7: Well, this takes place. This takes place, I guess, in the second act after the reveal has been made and after most of the characters have been killed off. Um, it's sort of as as my character John is is um, he's now he's now just instead of playing playing the girlfriend and the stepbrother, he's now just playing uh, this 40 year old sort of super agent. And he's playing himself, and, and this is sort of where his brain is at the moment, I guess. It's basically an email, also. Yeah. To, to the 16 year old. Yeah. His ramblings. He's a little obsessive. Okay. Margarita Carmen Cancino made her studio picture debut at age 16, but nobody liked her much, so they dyed her hair red and renamed her Hayworth. And so Margarita Cancino became Rita Hayworth, AKA the love goddess. And famous people can get married five times, and so Rita did, including, of course, one of the greatest couplings ever in Hollywood romance, her marriage to Orson Welles, the genius, the genius, the genius. And the press dubbed them Beauty and the Brain, and they entertained the troops with a magic act, and they were in love, and so Orson would saw Rita in half. And have you ever seen F for Fake? It's this unbelievable documentary Orson Welles made about the nature of artistic fakery, and basically... You think it's all about this one thing, but Orson has tricks up his sleeve and plays them on his audience who is completely fooled. And to even call this thing a documentary is deceitful, but then that's the point because what is art? What is artifice? What is truth? What is trust? What is trickery, fraud, illusion, duplicity? And how do you know anything you, me, he, she, I, us is real or fake? A figment, a fraud an actor in a made-up movie, or a lying play. And, of course, Effer Fake was a fitting conclusion to Orson's career, which started out with a fake resume and a phony Martian invasion, but all good things must come to an end. And so Orson and Rita divorced in 1945, and after hit picture, Gilda, she said, Every man I have ever known has fallen in love with Gilda and waken with me. Then she died of
0: Alzheimer's disease at the age of 68. All right, so do you think the, the change up in the order of this reveal, is, has this affected how you approach the character at all, Max? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's given him a lot more to do
7: in the second act. <laughs> yeah, I think it has because I, I think, um, well, I think the main thing that's affected how I play my character is that is that in the second act I, I am now playing one of the characters that I create as well as my character, and so it, it's it's become easier for me to sort of to, to trace where 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 my character John is, as well as where this this new person I've created is, um, so I have sort of a, a, a I can I can. Play around more with how they play off of each other.
0: Sixty-nine, sixty-nine has had, from mm-hmm. <laughs> when we were talking here before, amazingly yeah. short development time, and yes. and you're an amazingly young playwright too to be getting a <laughs> a mounting with such an established company. So I take that as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> how did that How did that all progress? Uh, why did you decide to write this? How, you, what What brought the gears in motion to kind of bring it together so fast? Sure. Uh, well, I, you know, I went to Boston University and I started a theater
6: company right out of school with a bunch of kids that I collaborate with really well. And uh, so we've been working in the city really hard making these new pieces of theater. One of the company members, Boo Killabrew, read an article about this story in Vanity Fair, actually. And she told me about it. And I just remember thinking, What? are you talking? I couldn't put two and two together. I just had no... I was, I was like, I, I just can't believe that and, like, that 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 this 14-year-old would do that and that he wanted to die and that he ordered a, a 16-year-old through another character, but he ordered the 16-year-old to kill him and I just had no way into it. So that was probably why I started writing it, sort of to... I read up a lot on the story. I found a lot of newspaper articles about it and then I, I sort of asked myself a lot of questions (laughs) about who i am and and thought a lot about who these boys must have been and that's where the play came from just sort of a i guess a questioning of and then of course you know in this day and age a questioning of technology and how it's used and how it's regulated and which is not exactly something the play ever tackles but i think it's inevitable that the audience thinks about it, um, because, especially because of the ages of these people. If there was ever a question of why we're doing this play, it feels all the more timely than it did even just two years ago um, between Mark Foley and uh, sort of nightline uh, Internet catch a Predator. predator. You're to right, Catch a Predator, <laughs> which I feel like now I see everywhere. I go, I went who, to a, who thought that would turn into like
0: sheer, like, I know. Vegas-y entertainment? <laughs> really.
6: Uh, we went to a bar recently, like a bar in Tribeca, and it was just, you know, sort of, in all places, Tribeca, but it was still kind of a dive bar, and the TV was on, and people were just watching to Catch a Predator, like, popping peanuts. It was really funny. We were like, oh, I guess that's timely for you. <laughs> now, when does the show open? It opens um, officially on February 10th. There's a preview performance on the 9th that's open to the public, and it runs through the 24th. All right. Any chance for an extension? Uh, there's a chance. We Yeah. I guess we're going to see how it goes, and, and we expect it to sell pretty well, so it's definitely possible.
0: So, 6969 69 69, at 59 69. East 59. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely thank both of you, Jordan and Max, for coming down to talk with Broadway Bullet. It sounds like a fascinating show. Thank you, thank, thank you, thank you for having us.
5: Broadway Bullet exclusive.
0: I'm sitting here in the studio with three of the people involved with the Great Gardens: Scott Frankel, the composer, and two of the stars, Aaron Davey and Matt Kavanaugh. How are you doing today? Hey,
8: how are you? Great. Right.
0: What's been keeping you busy since uh, the New Year's?
8: Scott,
9: well, please
8: well, go. well, these guys have eight shows a week to do, and I went to Argentina. But it's really yeah. nice to know that the show is being performed so beautifully on stage at the Walter Kerr when I can go off
0: traveling the world. It's very reassuring to me. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with the show, but kind of as a brief summary for those of us who for those of us who may not have heard about the show yet, what's the quick you know elevator pitch on what the show's about?
8: Sure, the uh, Reader's Digest version is that it's called Gray Gardens. It's a musical based on a 1975 documentary, and it tells the story of an elderly mother and her adult daughter. They're both named Edith. They live together in a decaying mansion in East Hampton, and um, the most interesting part of their lives, in a way, is that they are first cousin and aunt of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And the house was condemned by the Suffolk County Board of Health, and it became a scandal. And it was brought to the attention of the filmmakers, and they got to go inside the house and film this incredibly fascinating and very unusual mother-daughter story.
0: <laughs> My toes are tapping already. Yay! <laughs> now I understand that you, this was actually your idea from the beginning, Scott. It sure was. So, what what inspired you to think of this as a musical? Well, for for those people money. who don't don't know the documentary, yeah, Matt
8: Matt's, Matt's saying money money. <laughs> well, besides <laughs> the money, Matt, uh, you know the mother and the daughter in the in the documentary. For those who haven't seen it, uh, there. They're both kind of stage struck. The mother was a soprano in her youth, and she loved to sing songs in her parlor in East Hampton, and the daughter fancied herself a kind of great dancer. So the fact that they love American popular music and sing and dance around the house, I thought, hmm, well, that part sounds like a musical, singing, dancing. (laughs) And even though they were uh, living in trash-strewn beds and eating uh, cat food and calling it pate, I still thought that that musical motor, that engine, would be uh,
0: something you could build a show around. Matt, you've been involved with the show since its inception at the Playwrights Horizon, or has it been even earlier than that? Uh,
10: Yeah, actually earlier than that. I got a call in um, November of 04 to go down to Sundance Theatre Lab uh, in December of 04, and that's where I first met Scott and started to work on it. At that time, there was just a, a first act, which is pretty much intact, as what you see at the Kerr every night. But the second act, there really wasn't anything.
8: Yeah, we got, there's this, uh, you know, Sundance has a very famous film festival, obviously, but they also have a theater lab where they develop musicals like Grey Gardens and like Spring Awakening, too. Mm. So they've actually had a pretty good track track (laughs) record this season. But we got to, uh, we got to work with a lot of our same uh, actors and kind of develop the show around them. And that was kind of an unbelievable opportunity.
0: Now, Aaron, you came in with the Broadway premiere of the show and had to craft a, a, a intricate performance based kind of around what Christine Eversall was doing in the second act, as she plays your character Little Edie in the second act. Right. So what was that like, having to come in and kind of craft that around what had already been kind of a very noted performance?
1: Um, I actually have to say I crafted it more from the documentary, um, because in my very early rehearsals, Christine wasn't always there And when she was, we were working on first act stuff because we really didn't have the time to work on something that she had already had down, you know. So um, I started mainly with the movie, and so I took it off Edie on film.
8: I mean, for for your listeners who don't know, what we've done is we've imagined a first act that takes place in 1941. And in the first act, Christine Ebersole plays the mother, Big Edith, and Aaron plays her daughter, little Edie, and then after intermission, we jump forward, uh, flash forward to the 70s, and the house is in decay, and Christine switches roles and then becomes the daughter, an adult version of Aaron. and Mary Louise Wilson comes out and plays her mother. Sounds complicated, but it seems to be working nicely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got a special treat while we're doing this interview. I understand that you're also going to be uh, performing three of the songs here and uh, live in the studio, and Scott, you're going to be playing the piano for them.
8: Well, hell yeah.
0: (laughs) And these are songs that the two of them that we're going to be doing today are not on the off-Broadway cast recording. They're new for the show. Yeah,
8: the show ran off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons in the spring of last year, and we had a very successful run. It was extended three times, but... Between the time we closed and the time we reopened on Broadway, we got a chance to really uh, revisit some areas of the show that might not have been working as well as we would have liked. So, as a result, there are a lot of new songs and new cast members and new dialogue in the Broadway version, and you're going to hear some of that today.
0: Why don't we start off with uh, Aaron performing one of the numbers. You want to tell us a little about this?
8: Yes, this actually is one of the new songs. It's called The Girl Who Had Everything. And it uh, sets up a little bit about that it's the story of a young girl, a young debutante, who is uh, having an engagement party on a beautiful summer afternoon in 1941 in East Hampton. And uh, she is literally the girl who has everything.
4: She is the girl who has everything. She has the world on a string. Meltingly lovely, as pure as the morn. Venus reborn, taming a unicorn. Marry the girl who has everything. Carry her all Oh
0: What were some of the reasons you made for adding some of the new songs? And you know, Matt, did you miss losing the song you had in the, the first version? Because I know. Uh,
10: you Well, yeah, and had a actually, the, the song. song that you heard at Playwrights is actually not even the first song. We there was a different song at, at Sundance, and I've been told there have been several other versions that even I didn't even hear. So uh, I think it may be the fifth song in that slot. Yes,
8: we keep we keep trying to rewrite that moment until but we I think get we it, it until we get it right.
10: Got it. Um, you know, I, I don't miss it. That was, I loved uh, Better Fall Out of Love. It was a great tune. Uh, very much, and I think I like a Rogers and Hart style. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, but as Scott says, this new one, uh, um, Going Places kicks. And uh, I agree. And it just fits in our show. You You know, know,
8: a lot of our rewrites concern the the story of uh, Little Edie, who's played by Aaron, and it's her engagement party, and she was engaged to Joseph Kennedy, Jr., who was the elder son of Joe Kennedy, Sr., and the older brother of John Kennedy. And he was killed several years later in the war, but we're in 1941, and they are very much in love and engaged. And as the act progresses, uh, you see that their engagement... uh, has a lot of bumps in the road. But at this moment... I don't in, think it's going to end well. Well, um, yes. But you have to pay You have to pay your money. See, I'm, <laughs> I'm coming back to money. Matt brought up money. I was going to talk about art, but he started talking about money. So if you insist on making me talk about money, then you'll have to come to the Walter Kerr and buy your ticket and find out how it all turns out. All right. But the song you're going to hear now is called Go In Places, and it uh, it's in a energetic aggressive dance number that shows how ambitious joe kennedy jr is how he really is a political uh, dynamo and the and the, the the favored prince of the kennedy dynasty he was being groomed for the presidency and he wants Edie to come along with him and they are going places together
3: i've got the perfect house in mind right on pennsylvania avenue me and the old man mapped it out Fastest road to the Senate floor Youngest man to be Senator elect How so? The usual way Pick up some medals overseas Kick the butts of those SOBs Zip back home Get married and gain respect I'll fly back here to East Hampton Scoop Ah, you right up into the cockpit Kid, we're going places Going places you never dreamed you'd see as your social graces give some panache to me I'll do my best <laughs> With your pensive smile and style, a style That demonish want to be Kid, we're going places your mama won't believe
4: oh, You know the trouble with the White House jar mm. It could use a little colour <laughs> Picture the White House, I'd restore not to criticize eleanor home decor just isn't her stocking tray
3: <laughs> you dress up any room just by being
2: in it
4: oh, and as a former waldorf deb i'll make fashion my cause celeb. call it my american style crusade remember joe it's not what you wear oh no it's how you wear it <laughs>
3: Kid, we're going places Going places we never dreamed we'd get As our love's embraces fill up the bassinet Let's Slow
4: down, not yet With your Colgate grin, Dick Tracy chin That Hollywood film star sheen
3: Kid, we're going places the nation's never seen New As long as we've each other.
4: Long as I escape my mother.
3: Your mother? Shouldn't I be the one who matters most? But you
4: are, of course
3: you are. The way you talk, a fella could forget. You're the
4: only one on my dance card.
3: All the signs are good, so knock on wood, we're gonna be okay cause the place we're going, we're going all the way, we're going all the way, we're going all the way,
0: we're going all the way. Scott, I've noticed one thing. You've got, you get to flex your chops in two very different ways. The like the second act is a lot of contemporary, and there's a whole different style going on. And the first act, you get to write a lot of what I swear—one thing I like is you're not just writing songs from that period. You're, song, you're writing songs that you could have sworn came out in that period.
8: Some people have said that to me, that there's a song that Christine sings at the end of the first act called Will You. And they're like, it sounds like— it. Did you write that? It sounds like it's from the force. And I actually take that as a great compliment. I mean, I, I
0: mean it that way, too. I you?
8: really try to. I mean, I love Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart and, and Cole Porter and, and Kern. And, uh, you know, those are the great uh, songs and standards from the American Songbook. And I really tried to let all of that wash over me and then kind of filter through me. And then whatever came out, I was going to call New, uh, new, you know, my new standards uh, for the period of Act One, but it was an incredible opportunity, as you say, to write in two different styles. Because Act Two, you know, you see visually the house has gone to shambles, the ladies have gone to shambles, and the music too also goes to—I uh, don't want to say it goes to shambles, but it, <laughs> it, it goes to go-
0: a da- much darker. It area. goes to
8: darker and a kind of weirder and odder places. I mean, in the second act, there's a song called "Jerry Likes My Corn." I mean, that's a, not many musicals. I think can have a musical <laughs> called Jerry Likes My Corn. So you see, it goes, it gets weirder. But the first act is very much uh, is very much in the period of the '40s because you look on stage and William I. B. longs costumes and Matt and Aaron are looking very period, and we really feel like we're in a gorgeous drawing room in 1941.
0: Now, is either one of those styles particularly more natural to you or, or are you kind of schizophrenic yourself as a composer and like going all the different places?
8: You know, I always used to worry about, you know, was it original? Is it derivative? Is it pastiche? Does it sound like someone else? And for this show, I really tried to turn the volume down on all those questions and just really try to write for character and write for the specific situation at hand. So I kind of put my hands on the Ouija board and wherever it took me, that's where I went.
0: <laughs> now, between as we've been getting ready for all this stuff, I've heard a lot of great stories out of you. you between the three of you, do you have any like funny, interesting backstage antics stories? Yeah, you guys, tell um, me
8: what happens when I'm in Argentina. <laughs> I'm in Argentina. You tell us what happens. No, when you know. like I'm, yeah, I, right? I get I get these emailed show reports from the stage manager saying, "Very nice show tonight, great audience response," but I want to know what's really happening backstage. <laughs> Are Christine and Mary Louise fighting? Are they evil? Are there diva cat fights? Well, there aren't diva cat fights. I, I'm a, I'm a
10: Favorite of Mary Louise when she, you know, has uh, Mary Louise, God bless her, she's incredible, but sometimes she goes up and it's quite funny. And what's great is that she loves it too, and we all get to celebrate that.
8: Oh, well, that's good. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. No. It is live after all, ladies and gentlemen. Live. And Aaron uh, whats your, what's, it, what's it like for you backstage this is Aaron's Broadway debut I'm yes, ha- I'm I happy definitely I'm happy to report it's,
1: it's very uneventful I think we don't have enough cast members for there to be too much yeah drama. there's not too much drama it's, my it's, favorite it's, thing is watching what Christine's latest excitement is yeah that's the excitement backstage. Is- Christine's
8: Christine Ebersole, our leading lady, is, is, in addition to being a brilliant performer, is a very colorful person. And she has about 875 animals, 413 children, a husband, a partridge, and a pear tree. And there's all sorts of, in addition to doing an incredibly <laughs> difficult part on Broadway eight times a week, so her life is
0: filled with drama and hijinks. Well, hopefully we can get her on later to talk about some of those hijinks, too. But Aaron, back to your Broadway debut here. Yeah, where, where, where are you originally from?
1: Nashville, Tennessee.
0: Nashville. So, did you think you'd end up playing some uh, northeastern highbrow character as your Broadway debut?
1: No, no, I didn't. I don't know what I thought I would do. I, you know, I wanted to do theater, but I certainly, I don't even know if I dreamed this big and or this cool. This show is so cool. It's it's so new and interesting and different.
8: I mean there is there is something I would imagine for performers uh, you know it's it's great to do revivals and great to do the the, the great parts in the uh, in the canon of American musicals but I would think but, yeah. I would think that it would be a, a very cool thing to actually be the first person playing a part ever and know that there everybody else down the road you will have originated the role yes
4: yes it's so very cool
8: yay <laughs> it's,
0: great. it's really yay.
8: Awesome. Well, yeah. it's more than, I mean, we, we were talking a little bit earlier,
10: and and, and Aaron, I mean, I think we've, I've said this to you, but I mean, Aaron's a godsend, I mean, she's, she's great, and she talked about how maybe she wasn't, you know, modeling her performance on Christine, or more on the documentary, but I know as, you know, an outside actor watching her, how her performance continues to evolve and is shaped by, you know, she'll watch in the second act some of what Christine is doing, and then I'll see it on stage show up, you know, a week later, you know, when we're doing stuff in the first act, and, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm so happy to be on stage, Yeah,
1: it's true. It? I have yeah. grown a lot. Some, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people say that to me.
10: You're incredible. Well, it,
8: well, I,
1: it is a, it's kind of a end compliment. It is, but you, but, but you know what? I agree, so it's fine. It's um, too. Too. No,
8: I mean, Erin, exactly. in addition yeah. to having a splendid voice, is a very uh, sharp actress and clearly a very good observer and, and listener. And I think that's—they always say that's what it takes to be a good actor, to, mm. to be a good listener. And uh, I think Thank that uh, we're very thrilled to have her as part of the company. And yes. she certainly hit the ground running because yeah. many of our other cast members had, had been with the show since its earlier incarnations. But it's a happy family now. It's an extraordinary company of performers. They're all, uh, they're all uh, soloists in their, in their own right. It's, an, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of soloists.
0: Off topic a little bit, Aaron and Matt, were you completely devastated that you were tied up and not able to go out for You're the One That I Want?
10: Uh, I was but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm T-voting it every Sunday so I'm kept. I'm
0: catch- you know you I, could have been
10: Danny you know and what I, Sandy you know what I do think actually having watched it I was I like, never I was like man why didn't I come up with some like alter ego and just go in there and just act like a jackass hoping that you know I could get on one of those first few episodes that's what I wanted to do that would know?
8: actually be a really funny idea for like for some sort of Broadway fights, AIDS, equity whatever function uh, that they, that you guys would be dressed up as, as, as Danny and Sandy yeah. <laughs> well young lovers yeah. everywhere in the 40s in the okay. 60s and the 70s and the 50s, whatever. That would be cool. I definitely. You could be dressed up, you know, in your
0: fawns, you know. I'm down. Grease like lightning look. I
1: don't let's really have do, it. To do it. yeah. As long as I don't really
0: have to do it. On- <laughs> <laughs> and Matt, I don't think many of our listeners would guess that you're also from the South originally.
10: I am. I'm a Hick from Arkansas.
0: So, so yes. where did you, so did you pick up a lot of this voice from your character? Because. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, you know. I can't I, imagine. This is. The South.
10: No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've been removed from home for about. Ten plus years now uh, with the school upstate and whatnot, but I know I listened to a lot of Kennedy, a lot of the dad, and of course a lot of um, um, uh, John Kennedy, um, and you know worked with a dialect coach a lot. But now yeah, I think I was telling you earlier. I, someone told me the other day that he thought I he sounded like Katherine Hepburn. And uh, which I'd never been told before, but he thought I sound like Katharine Hepburn when
8: I talk. I don't think that Greece and Katharine Hepburn have ever been mentioned in such close proximity. <laughs> in such close proximity, and I can only thank God that Miss Hepburn is no longer on the planet You have to endure that. My Jesus! Although she would be, she would be terrific as the, as the principal. Oh, she would. We could, yeah. What was you know, the Eve Arden yeah, part of the movie? Yeah. She could be Miss Lynch. Uh, She's unavailable, but she would have been terrific. <laughs>
0: I think we're also overlooking here that that there's only one other person besides Christine Ebersole who really does a dual character, and that's Matt here. So do, how do you have a lot of fun when you get into your role in the second oh, sure. act?
10: Well, you know, when I got the call to come down to Sundance for this thing, I was like, oh, cool, playing a Kennedy, that sounds great. Uh, I'll do it. But I really didn't know that I'd also be playing Jerry, nor did I really know who Jerry was, and it wasn't until I watched the documentary and sense of, you know, come to know him and... You know, we can call him later if you want him. He's a very sweet man, and he's around know.
8: in the city. Yeah, Matt, in the first act in the 40s, plays plays Kennedy, as he said. And in the second act, he plays a guy named Jerry. And Jerry was a teenager who uh, helped the ladies in East Hampton in the 70s when their house was in such an extreme disrepair. And he came in and tried to help them pass, pass code. And they... Uh, they developed a very strong affection for each other, a kind of a mother and sister surrogate relationship, but also sometimes a bit like a, almost like a jilted, uh, a jilted suitor. Mm. So I think that, I think that particularly, uh, considering that Matt plays someone who was in, in love with
0: little Edie in the first act, and then, like when, I was actually just going to get there. I was going to say, is this just you know economics cast in the same actor, or is there a symbolic connection? No, in your I think mind? very
8: much so because in the second act, he does become someone that the women can argue over and yeah. fight for, fight for his affections and for and for his attention. So, um, you know it's very, it's very, it's done very intentionally.
10: Yeah, and I I love playing Kelly, but I I love going out there and playing Jerry. I mean, he's someone that's very different from who I have played before, and he's very different from Joe. And you get to wear and a cool wig. I get too. to wear it. Fabulous wig, you know, <laughs> and and I get to be on stage with you know both uh, Christina, Mary Louise, and it's it's just beautiful to see. It's like
8: with. a kind of like Leonard Skinnerd kid working at a convenience store, like that <laughs> kind of look. And and maybe and maybe he's maybe he likes certain herbal herbal remedies. Perhaps. Perhaps. Oh. Perhaps it's been yes. rumored.
0: Well, why don't we get into here uh, before we finish off our interview? The last of the original songs you're gonna play for us. Want to set this one up a little bit? Sure. This is called
8: Daddy's Girl. This is toward the end of the first act, uh, and uh, we begin to see real chinks in the armor, and things are not going as planned with the engagement between uh, Joe and Edie. You're giving it away. No, no, I'm just going teasing them. I'm <laughs> teasing them, and we're uh, Edie is 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 very hopeful that once her father, Mr. Beale, arrives. Uh, that he'll be able to set everything right and get everything back on course. So this is Daddy's girl.
3: How do I know I'm not business as usual? Joke. That you'd oblige any fella, any time, any place, That's just to escape Grey Gardens. about your mother. Your mother said right here, not two minutes don't ago. Don't believe a
4: word of my mother. Interfering pain in the can. Burning up with unspoken envy. I got me a bona fide man! Don't change the subject. Me and Daddy don't have relations separate rooms with double locked doors. S-E-X for her and her eunuch. Stopped at the Punic Wars. I'm my daddy's girl. Chip off the old man's block. Yes, my daddy's girl. Proper and prim as Plymouth Rock. Take off that lipstick. Wash off that pearl. I'm impassioned by good old-fashioned ideals. Father will be home soon enough. Talk to him, Joe.
3: Why? Why? Because he's willing to cover for you? Know,
4: because he loves me. Hmm? Because he isn't competing. Mother has a yen for the spotlight. Daddy disapproves of the stage. Never get your name in the papers except for the nuptial page. I'm not sure so Modulate so- your voice to a whisper. Always hide your sexual side That's enough As for getting drunk in that frat house What? Father O'Hanlon lied I'm my daddy's girl What, frat house? Virginal as a saint That's my daddy's girl Father O'Hanlon Bottle of otters, self Self-restraint
3: 80. Before he gets married, there are certain things that a guy's got to know. Girl.
4: I'm a girl. i Miss Courtney's Listen to reason. Let's not be immature. Honestly, Joe, I thought you said that
2: you were
3: sure. I know what I said. I'm his daughter, Joe,
4: not hers. Now I
3: want to believe you. Believe but... me.
4: Believe Daddy. He'll make it right. I know he will over a nice scotch or a Cuban cigar, you'll see. Edie, I just... Please!
3: All right. One whiskey. In his study.
4: Tell him I won't just sit in any boy's lap. Tell him I don't give kisses for compliments. Some things just aren't worth a fraternity pin. Some things just aren't... Tell him only what you know about me, Daddy. Not what you don't. I'm my daddy's girl, used to his stony glares. And I know deep down he's just critical because he can't.
0: Garden's as a as a musical, it's only fitting considering how cultish the documentary has been. It seems to be a show that has a lot of people with very strong feelings, probably both ways, but I'd love to hear from the fans, you know, what have been your favorite responses from the people who are real passionately into this show? Wait.
8: Yeah, do you guys? Do you, are you guys greeted by rabid fans at the stage door while, while I'm in Argentina?
10: Jerry came to the show Sunday actually yeah, with the a group
8: of the. Uh,
10: oh,
1: that's the first time. You yeah, actually. What do you think? It was very cool. It was really surprising wild, to me how I felt like I already knew him. Yeah, he felt like family. Yeah. He's he's so just affectionate such too. A he just
10: loves people wants to hug. Oh, he's so great. do
8: people ever come dressed up because uh, little Edie was such a fashion icon sure. in the 70's. do people actually come dressed in snoods <laughs> and, and parkas not often, and, and
10: not often but the first happened. few performances and, when, uh, oh, and you, yeah, you know you
8: when we were at Playwright's Horizons too uh, I saw this group of women you know in their 50s and 60s from Seattle Washington and they had flown in and they were all wearing their revolutionary costumes. Oh. Which was sure. very cool because uh, you know there are a lot of drag queens who who dress up as Edie, and that was that's something I would have expected more. But actual biological women of a certain age coming in <laughs> and, and from Seattle, no less. Well, that was that was very cool. But it, yeah, it, I mean, it is a movie that uh, that has been uh, kind of an underground cult classic for many years, and uh, but it's starting to trickle down into the mainstream. But I do think though that our audiences now. By and large, haven't seen the documentary, and yet they're still responding to the story. They're able to focus uh, on the mother-daughter relationship, and it's an entertaining story. Uh, and, well, yeah,
10: Scott and the rest of the creative team did a great job of writing a show that you didn't have to be, you know, you didn't have to be in, you didn't have to know the documentary, so I have people all the time that tell me, oh, I, I've never seen it, but God, i got to go rent it. Yeah, out. I mean, I don't
8: believe yeah. you should have to do homework to go to the theater, my, <laughs> yeah. my God, I mean, it's a lot to ask, but, you know, I think you do have a different experience if, you, if you've seen it, but it doesn't mean you have any less of an experience mm. if you haven't, it's just different.
1: We've mm. probably done wonders for the DVD sales,
8: though. Well, <laughs> well we hope so. Must we talk about money Aaron? Uh, no? back to money.
0: <laughs> Well, I definitely want to thank the three of you for taking time to come down to the studios for this for this wonderful performance and interview. And obviously, Christina Ebersole is getting tons of, like, everybody's saying that she's already won the Tony. But I, I think there's three people sitting in the room right now who are very strong candidates, you know, coming up for the Tony. So I wish everybody here the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, Michael. The Call Board. I had a chance to catch up with some of the winners from our Going Geeky on Spring Awakening contest. There was a talkback section after the show for all of the winners. And I got a chance to talk to them after that. Here's what they had to say. Holly, how was the talkback thing? It was
11: incredible. It was so exciting. I've been to many, and this was the best one ever. Missouri, Washington. My brother actually won for me, but, like, I've been... I was gonna cry if so I didn't well, like. I called not you exactly because
0: she entered me into the competition yeah. and I didn't even know that. And then know. I won, got getting an email, and then I told her about it because she was sobbing. I was sobbing because uh,
9: like I had <laughs> she issues. Thought she lost, I had issues. And uh,
0: I'm sorry. actually, I won. <laughs> My
12: name's Elizabeth. And
0: you came from where?
12: Brandon, Florida.
0: <laughs> was it worth it? Oh
12: yeah. Oh yeah.
0: How did you guys enjoy the talk back of the uh, show? Oh, we loved oh, it.
12: Great. It's really nice just being able
4: to talk to them because, like, you always forget when they're up there that they're actually just like teenagers like us. What are your names? Lauren. Um, Lauren and, and Emlyn. Uh, Emlyn. Okay,
0: congratulations. <laughs> you too. Hey, what's Hi, your name? Hi, Galia. Galia? Mm-hmm. How would you enjoy the show? It
11: was amazing and they were so nice during the talk back. They're, they were just really spectacular. What's your name? Uh, Megan.
0: So How did you enjoy the show?
5: It was great. We actually had just seen it on the stage a few weeks ago before we knew that he won the tickets. So um, then we got to see it on the stage and in the audience. It's a very
0: different experience, though, in the audience. It's a lot more fun on stage, I think. Hey, Lily. But (laughs) it's still really cool. What's your name?
11: Oh, I'm Charlotte. I'm Lauren. It was amazing. It's my fifth time, and it's still everything. It's just magical.
0: (laughs) So, what's your favorite internet podcast?
13: Broadway Bullet.
11: (laughs) Absolutely. Broadway Bullet. yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much to Broadway Bullet. Yeah. Really enjoyed the experience.
0: Now we've got another great contest, along with our exclusive tracks from Grey Gardens. They are being so kind to give us two pairs of tickets to give away to two people who register for our site. It's simple. we got a brand new website. Everybody's been asking for something a lot better and easier to find with more information on it. And, wow, we have that. We have... We've got theater blogs and you can actually find them you can actually read them. we've got lots of theater news. we've got better coverage on you know follow-up notes to everything that's in this show you can find a lot more you got to go check it out. You can even submit reviews or submit links to other reviews if you're a registered member and that's what we're looking for. if you sign up and register by next Thursday February 15th, everybody who registers will be in a drawing to win one of two pairs of tickets to Gray Gardens. It's just the tickets to the show, not the airfare if you're out of town. But we will be giving away. And in addition, Grey Gardens is going to be offering everybody who registers for our site a special discount code. And you got two weeks to sign up for that. So by the 22nd, if you sign up, you'll get a great discount offer from Grey Gardens. Our last note here on the call board is for any of you Florida people, specifically if you're in Orlando or know somebody in Orlando, they're having the Orlando Fringe Festival for 2007, but they've got a problem rounding up enough people to host all the actors that are going to be coming in. So if you know somebody in Orlando or if you live in Orlando and you're willing to kind of you know, throw up a bed to some poor starving actor or director or whatnot please get in contact with Beth Marshall the producing artistic director. You can reach her by email at producer at orlandofringe.org or call her by phone at 407-648-0077 extension 1. And as a reminder, you even get a tax deduction for putting people up. So it's a great thing to do.
5: On the boards.
0: We're talking to some people with the new off-Broadway production, Absolute Clarity. And to give it a little flavor, two of the musicians who play throughout the show came into the studio to track some of the songs that they play during the show to give a little flavor to the interview. So how are you guys doing?
11: Woo! Great.
0: All right. (laughs) Would you like to take a second to introduce yourselves?
11: I'm Sophia Roma. I'm the playwright. Um, Perhaps the clarity.
14: Uh, I'm Jason
0: E. Shannon. I play Moses.
14: My name is Sean Ryan. I'm the production manager.
0: This is a kind of different and complex play. (laughs) But in a nutshell, do you want to try to maybe sum up what it's about?
11: I think it's a poetic coming-of-age story. It's um, uh, Claire, uh, the heroine. A uh, young girl, around 17, 18 years old, is a visual artist, a conceptual artist, and a poet. And she, in a lyrical way, uh, grows up in the sh- and experiences the shades of adulthood uh, by um, entertaining with a jazz group that belongs to the village, um, while finding love with an older man and finding love with uh, Joey the Jazz, who is part or the leader of the group called The Pig Packets, um, but they're actually a thieving jazz group uh, that camouflage themselves as jazz musicians but really do pickpocketing. Um, <laughs> and that was inspired by um, Robert Bresson's film called The Pickpocket of uh, Prince and um, by Barrington's novel, which I saw in school when I was at NYU at Tisch, Tisch School of the Arts. So that's really much the play. It's, a, it's that, that kind of musical kind of hip play, lyrical.
0: Now, I understand you're originally from Russia but emigrated here when you were very young.
11: Yeah, so I was about six years old. Um, that was in 19. 19- 79. So I was born in Moscow and emigrated, and I've been living in New York all my life. And I went to uh, Tish uh, Village for six years. So um, I know the village pretty well. And I also come from La Mama Experimental Theater, where uh, I had three plays um, produced uh, over a period of nine years after college. So
0: One of the things that must be rather interesting with this whole production is, I understand your director is Russian and actually doesn't speak any English. <laughs>
11: Yes, that's correct. That's the most interesting um, and, and also the, 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 the saddest and happiest part of our production. Um, unfortunately, yes, he doesn't <laughs> yeah, understand yeah. he screams. <laughs> that's the one th- Russian sh- the yes, one Russian word I know. Our actors have been picking up a lot of Russian <laughs> words. He's been picking up a lot of English words. I've been doing a double job of being a translator, so I'm on, on rehearsals for twelve hour shifts, um, translating and trying to cut my, my lines or doing whatever the director asked me to. But he's a very famous director from the Mayakovsk Academic Art Theater. Again, that's the second theater after the Bolshoi, um, and it's it's a he's he's fine. He's done about 150 plays in Russia and He's um, Yeltsin gave him the award for a best director. Uh, he runs his own master class. He's he's a delightful person, but a tyrannical, a, a little bit tyrannical during rehearsals. So that could be that could be. But he only it's only in the spirit of doing the best play. So it's interesting to work with him.
0: <laughs> Sean and Jason, how is it for you dealing with uh, a director who doesn't speak the language?
14: Do you, want, do you want me to go? First? I, when, when you and Alexander, I guess there's a visual thing that you know Yuri does, where he just kind of raises his hand up or drops it down. You know, yeah, like if the scene's crappy and it's losing energy,
15: he goes with his hand like a plane crashing. Yeah, I don't know. And, um, I'm lucky; my role isn't very huge, so I haven't really gotten the full force of Yuri going crazy at me. Um, but I feel bad for all the other actors because uh, some have come to tears from his, what would you say? I don't know, his way of working. Um. <laughs> uh,
11: his his meticulous, meticulous. Yeah, yeah, way.
15: I mean, he can get pretty scary, actually. Uh. Also pretty brilliant, too. There yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah,
14: yeah, definitely. The first day we, um, we, we kind of got on set, the set was inspired in part by a Marc Chagall painting, um, which is, you know, can can be used in a lot of different ways. And seeing Yuri use the set and kind of just, everything's twisted. And where doors and entrance, you know, uh, are... One sense of our logic would tell us to stand on you know, the outside of the door, but he's got us standing on the inside of the door and just really using the space really well. And so that's, in, in trying to communicate, you know, set plans that came from Russia, it's been interesting, but, but I've had faith that he really does know the space and knows how to move about the space. And so that's been really cool to watch.
0: And I understand he's having a little bit of a hard time adjusting the fact that, uh, for for our listeners who don't know, in Russia, there's a big history of theater and a big history of long, drawn-out rehearsal periods. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
11: he, he's having a very hard time with it, because he, he doesn't understand the period, like I said, of tech, of q to q and that happens two, three days. He, he becomes crazy mad at the uh, site, the sound designer, the lighting designer, saying, what do you mean you're not going to stick around with it? He wants to work with them for six more months, he can't do that, because this play is very dense. It's got a lot of depth and in order to um, um, certainly permeate through that you have to be able to have time and you just don't have that time in America. In Russia in his theater he has um, people that are engaged, sometimes 400, 500 people engaged in one production and this is quite different. We have 10 actors, we don't have such a large troupe even for off-Broadway and this is my my first real bona fide off-Broadway production but um, for him it's, it's it's very difficult to adjust but he's, he's making his, he's doing something he's never done before. He's a real realist as it is sort of Chekhov kind of um, director, he directs realism. He doesn't direct um, surreal work. My this, as I said before, is more of a realistic work, but it's got some 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 sort of um, ions of, of realism. The beds still, however, when t- Sean talked about the set design, the beds are s- slightly upside down, or they're, they're not they're not beds that would would, that would be ordinary on stage. They stand um, vertically, so the actors have to actually place themselves vertically and then cocoon themselves, sort of like Hannibal Lecter. And <laughs> very. Um, but he's so he's trying. He's trying to. He, he's he's not a very young man. He's not an old man. But he's definitely trying to get into the spirit of the village and to direct the play as an American and uh, or at least trying to understand American um, visions.
14: I, I was able to work with Sofia on her last show, um, the "Shoot Them in the Cornfields," which was at the Producers Club, and. Um, just, you know, really right away just kind of saw that, that there was something going on with her. And I think we actually, one of our favorite playwrights mutual is uh, Federico Garcia Lorca. And uh, he has a play that's five years past, which this play I think is, is that was a play that he wrote to reconcile himself with Salvador Dali. So it was, again, this painterly, you know, br- kind of bringing paintings to life. And I think I think the play really kind of calls into question a lot of those you know where theater is these days. I mean, film film is really telling stories in such an amazing way these days, and it kind of display challenge is try, trying to bring theater up to par and, and say, wait a minute, we can. You know, we have tools here that we can utilize.
0: Jason, in addition to acting, I understand that you're you get to be a musician through most of the play as well.
14: I do, yes,
15: uh, <clears throat> I play a pickle barrel drum, kind of in the spirit of you know street performer. Out on the street, banging away, trying to make some money. It's actually pretty cool. the The band has a pickle barrel drum and a saxophone, and yet, I mean, I think some of the things we've written, because we wrote all the uh, to go along with what she wrote, what Sophia wrote. We wrote all the music, tried to combine all the words into rap numbers. It's, and I mean, not to sound like hockey, but it's pretty. I think what we came up with is uh, pretty good, yeah, pretty impressive. Cool.
14: Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't take credit for it. You no. know, obviously, the you musicians know, are uh, fabulous. It's, yes. al- it's always frustrating that we can't let them just rock out in their full.
11: They should sound cocky because <laughs> no, no, <laughs> <laughs> because my words are very difficult. Um, uh, the, the, it's, it's not. It's not. It's poetry. I'm, I'm a poet by by profession, really, and I. I um, it's hard to put it sometimes into rap or into bebop or into some kind of groove. And we had. Yuri um, wanted to use a, a sort of a musical composer. I've worked with, with some really famous ones before, but um, I said, why don't we give a crack to the, to the the guys that are actually going to perform the the actual jazz musicians the actors themselves and i think that it worked out quite well because it has a very authentic um villagey t- sort of swing and jive to it that i think was was they were able to establish just by trying to create their own their own rhythm and it's very it became sort of in a in a in a strange way almost broadway like definitely it's something that you would want to listen to that you would want to recreate in cd's and not you know phantom of the opera for sure but something that you would something that you would want to <laughs> Home it's not. I thought we were. It's not. No. <laughs> ah,
0: that's where we were trying to get it to. Yeah. Where and when and how can they see absolute clarity?
11: Well, it's at the Players' Theater, and, yeah. and it runs until the 25th of February. Theatermania, yes. <laughs> 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 www.theatermania.com. There's
14: also um, absoluteclarityplay.com, yes. too. Yes. We're definitely planning for it, It's right next to Café Wa, the Players' Theater, so I'm sure there's going to be you know, people sleeping outside yeah. <laughs> before it opens, like, like when Bruce Springsteen plays. And, so I'm sure there'll be a, a whole street festivity going on, yeah. too, in the cold.
11: Yes. Cold, cold. <laughs> called
14: New York. All right. Well, thanks for coming down.
11: Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank,
15: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Here we go. Yo, I want to tell you all a little story about my friend Dan. goes like this.
13: Uh, Dan's
15: Jewish, not black He drives a Cadillac my Blanc in his pocket No ladies in the back He's been practicing law Back before my day But he loses all his cases So anyway Cause there's never any justice See, uh That's how Judge Capria Wants to be Yeah Break it down for me, dude Moses part of the sea But not me, not me Moses pitching with the mighty God, But not me Got the madness in me So I jam to the people Those who will listen to me Uh I'm the thieving joker At the highest core I'm the prophet I'm the puppet king yeah, Moses comments and sees everything. Yeah. Pick packets. Uh. Yeah. Moses, Tita, Duke, and Joey the Jazz. Bring it home, baby.
2: Yeah.
0: A special thanks goes out to Patrick Knighton, who came in afterwards to play the sax with Jason when we figured out that there is some great music to play behind this.
13: Positive Side. Hey, it's Marty Cooper once again on the Positive Side. Like it or not, I'm still here. I remember when I went to school, when we got back from summer vacation, uh, we would talk about what we did on summer vacation. Well, we were on a little hiatus, and uh, what I did on a hiatus, Uh, and I'm going to lose all credibility here because I loved everything. First thing I took in was uh, company. And uh, I was a little skeptical about that because I did not care for the format as used in Sweeney Todd. I think it works a lot better here. Uh, Of course you have, I believe, the future Tony winner, Raoul Espada, uh, doing a fantastic performance. I think his Being Alive was one of the best versions I had heard of that song. Uh, I love Barbara Walsh trying to fill... Uh, Elaine Strix's shoes and she succeeds. Of course, she has to take a little of Elaine with her. It's gotta sound a little like what Elaine Strick sounded like because the song was basically written for her. But she has her own little angst, her own little hysteria at the end, and she is great. Uh, the whole cast was great, but uh, those two notably. I love the use of the instruments, uh, them playing their own instruments. Raoul, for instance, does not touch anything until he does being alive. At that point, he sits down at the piano and accompanies himself. And you cry listening to his, his song. Then I took in the apple tree at, at the roundabout Studio 54. And for me, at least, Kristen Chenoweth can do no wrong. Uh, she's funny. She's uh, attractive. Uh, she sings beautifully. She just does a great job in this show. And uh, I think, my opinion, uh, she's going to give Christine Ebersole a run for her money. The rest of the cast is equally as good. Uh, Mark Kudish, who never does anything wrong. And Brian Darcy James, equally up to the task. One thing I'm going to talk about also, I just heard a CD of a a fellow who's on tour now with uh, Light in the Piazza. Uh, His name is David Burnham. His voice is wonderful. His his interpretations of the songs he does is great. Uh, he does as long as your mind from uh, from Wicked with Eden Espinoza, someone uh, that a lot of fans of Wicked have loved doing that the part of Elphaba. It sounds wonderful. He also does from Light in the Piazza, uh, L- love love to me. I love that version of the song also. Also, uh, Craig Corney is flight. It's hard to find in a recording. The last recording I've, I heard was Brian Lane Green. He did a great job, but uh, I think David is even better. Uh, you might want to look out for this recording. It's coming out, I think, March 13th. Another thing I did on my time off, uh, I went last night to Birdland, and I saw a show that Wayman Wong put on. He writes for Playbill.com. It was the leading men of Broadway. All the guys they chose were great, but a few stood out. I particularly liked Norm Lewis singing Sailing, uh, a great William Finn song from, new, from a new brain. Hugh Panaro did a song from The Stat that Elton John wrote called Right Before My Eyes. And this was a tribute to J.C. Sheets, who had just died of a heart attack yesterday. He actually had played Valjean on Broadway for a while, and uh, he had taken sick, he had taken ill with AIDS, and he was a dresser at Phantom. He was a dresser for The Phantom, and we had seen him often. Uh, He was a great guy, and he passed away yesterday of a heart attack. And then there was a song that cut out of Urban Cowboy that Matt Cavanaugh did, uh, which I I particularly liked. It's called I Take It Back. Uh, He did a great job on that. Uh, The show was fantastic. Serving as host was John Tattaglia, who announced uh, that he he wasn't particularly overjoyed, that Beauty and the Beast was closing at the end of July, uh, because he just got the part of Lumiere. But he's a great guy, and of course it was... Uh, the musical director was the ever-present Seth Rudetsky, and he added his own little take on things. Uh, he did a, a, a little discussion about head voices and alto voices, and he was, he was great. Uh, it was all in all a great evening, and it was, it was for the benefit of Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. I'm happy to say on Sunday I'm going to see uh, what I believe can turn out to be a legendary event. I'm seeing follies at encores. I'll have my report on that next week. I'm sure I'll have a lot to say. I just want to say one thing. If it seems like I like almost everything I see, it might be because the prices they charge on Broadway now are so high that if you're going to spend that money, you're going to spend it on something you're probably going to be pleased with. Well, until next week, this is Marty Cooper saying, stay on the positive side.
0: On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. Online at ColonyMusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway, you can always say, I found it at The Colony.
5: On the road. We started
0: off our coverage with extensive coverage of the New York Musical Theater Festival, and a show that has made a splash out of the second New York Musical Theater Festival is now getting a major mounting and a revision in Philadelphia. We've got the three writers from Nerds, a musical software satire, with us. How you guys doing? Good. Good, thanks.
9: Good.
7: You
0: guys want to introduce yourselves quickly? Sure. I'm Jordan Allen-Dutton.
12: I'm one of the writers. Hal Goldberg, a composer. And I'm Eric Weiner,
0: uh, the other playwright. This was one of my favorite shows from the from the second year of the festival, and I was kind of stunned. It didn't, you know, transfer immediately off Broadway, though. Sharon, you know, talked with us a little bit in Volume Eight, I believe, about you know why that's happened. But from kind of your perspective, what has been the, the the path this past year and a half in moving it from nymph to, from what I understand, is a bigger scale production? Yeah, um, I think we um, had sort of bigger hopes
12: and dreams for the show that had to do with making a piece. Uh, play to a larger audience and um, making it you know have more depth and i think we wanted to work on it more and uh, we had this great offer from the philadelphia theater company to take it to philly so that's the next step for it
0: this is about the evolution of uh, the pcs and macs through the characters of steve jobs and uh bill gates so, do any of you get terrified that uh, that Steve Jobs is going to do something completely different and screw up the whole concept? <laughs> 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 Your show. Yeah, I mean the, the trajectory of Apple and,
16: <laughs> and Windows is changing every day. But uh, but I think why we love this show and, and loved writing it so much is because these two guys, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, have really had a huge impact on everybody's lives, and not everybody really knows about it. Um, even though most people are sitting in front of a computer every day, they're not completely sure how and why it got there. So um, this, this story really encapsulates the huge uh, impact technology has had on everyone's lives told through this humorous love story with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. It's not a love story between those two.
9: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what but, uh, we've been working on changing. We wanted to really uh, just yeah. make them That's tonight. An, it's anyway. in the subtext.
0: <laughs> <laughs> But I do think that a lot of the thing is it's about the characters in the thing. You know, I think I thought the concept of the musical sounded good even you know before I saw it. But a lot of people I talked to were like, "Oh, what's that?" <laughs> well, that's
9: one. That's one of the things I think we've been working on was really making it about these characters and fleshing all of the characters out and just making the story about the characters, and it just happens to follow the lives of, you know, the the, the sort
0: of history of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Right, because there are some fun characters in this. It's not, like, just about a concept. You've got some really good archetypes, and there's some really good classic, like, David versus Goliath, and kind of switching of the the guard across the play as the dynamic shift, and I, I assume a lot of that dynamic is stayed at the show. Yeah, and if
12: anything, gotten more... Um... I I mean, I think more touching and, you know, more meaningful. I mean, the the audience has to enjoy it whether or not um, they know anything about computer history or not. I mean, that's our goal. You know, I think not everybody knows the history of Apple and all their, you know, hardware, ridiculous hardware changes every couple years and Bill Gates and what he's done with, you know, Microsoft. Not everyone knows all that stuff. So, I mean, it kind of be a boring show if... You had to have a textbook or a Wikipedia online
0: while you were watching it to get anything out of it. Well, before we continue, um, why don't we play one of the songs from your uh, demo recording of the show? What's this first one we're going to be hearing? Macintosh. This is the song that
9: uh, Steve Jobs sings at the uh, convention when he's first, I guess, first unveiling Macintosh uh, in 1984. Four. Yeah, and Bill Gates
16: uh, is in our show is just about to give his presentation and uh, he's trying to show DOT, the version of DOS 2.0 and uh, the, the system crashes on him because he's running it on DOS and so he can't actually show his presentation and then these guitar screeches start coming over the, uh, the loudspeaker and he's getting all uh, freaked out and he doesn't know what it's coming from and it turns out that it's Steve Jobs entering in leather pants like Mick Jagger and busting this huge rock version of Macintosh. All right. Ah!
2: Dead elephants can fly, just look at Dumbo, don't get brainwashed by some corporate mumbo jumbo, don't you want something new, something easy to use, a smiley face when you're blue, Macintosh. It's not for the office. It fit you can fit in your house. The cursor on the screen response to this thing called a mouse. Look so out now! You can move it over here. You can. Move you want to make a bite of bit forbidden fruit? fruit. Well then it's time to take DOS take and give it DOS boo. Mac paint is so rad. A rectangle ain't bad. You can't fill it with that. Macintosh. Computers aren't for launching missiles, computers are for launching guns. Computers are for big brother, computers are for everyone. Computers in every home. Cuz we're all equal. It's time to shut down the big mess.
0: What is the difference between creatively? Do you think between working in out of town, you know, in Philadelphia versus presenting it for a New York audience? Is it, does it feel like more pressure, less pressure? It- I think we're working
12: with an amazing creative team, and that's one of the big changes. Um, <clears throat> I mean, not that the NYMF team wasn't amazing, but this is a uh, an amazing caliber of director, uh, Phil McKinley, and uh, Joey McNeely, the choreographer, and you know, David Gallows designing the sets. And so it's really like we're working with a top notch. Uh, Team and they're really holding the piece to you know an amazing amount of uh, scrutiny, trying to make sure that it's you know doing what it's supposed to be doing. And I think we're taking uh, you know a really uh, professional approach to it in a different way than we were doing at NIMF, where where it was sort of a work felt like a workshop production to an extent. Now it really feels like we're you know going crazy with sets and choreography, which is fun. <laughs> the huge production
9: numbers and also the the team at Philadelphia has been so supportive, like from dramaturg to all of the artistic directors and, and just the way that they've been um, just helping us with the piece and also supporting us as we do all this and from casting to rewrites and they're at, they're at the run-throughs and they're, they're just so kind of involved in what we're doing that it's nice to have that kind of support there as well and they're, they're very excited about the show so it's, it's
0: exciting to be presenting there and to be staying there for a couple of weeks. I'm excited about that as well. Now, in the rewrite process, has there is, has it been just a lot of tweaking, or has there been any real major sectional? We changes? actually the name of the show is now called Jocks. <laughs> uh, no. um, we've been rewriting
9: massively. Um, I mean, just there there are I think four new songs, perhaps, and every song has now been changed or modified or tweaked or enlarged or added dance breaks. It's
0: well, it's, uh, the songs we're playing today here, are just demos even from the
9: earlier. Production, right? Yeah, this this a yeah, so changed last year. a bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's. I mean, for those that have seen it before, it's it's almost a completely different production. It's just bigger and deeper and better, I think. Yeah, yeah. but we kept all the jokes that made people laugh
16: from before and cut (laughs) all the ones that that didn't. Right. And we kept all the songs that people liked and we took
12: out all the songs that people didn't.
16: (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) So now it's awesome. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
12: Yeah. but we did keep a lot of bad things from before just because we wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how long is the production
0: going to be running in Philly and
16: where and... It the runs uh, right now for a month. The previews begin on, on January 26th, and the opening night's January 31st, and then it's running through February 25th with uh, the option of extension, and uh, we have high hopes that it's going to be extended, and um, it's at the Philadelphia Theater Company, which uh, is
0: phillytheaterco.com. What are your... What Are your Are there any... It's top secret. <laughs> our plan, our are there any signs <laughs> of this coming to New York yet at this point? Oh, definitely there's a lot of... Um,
12: What, rumors, speculation, uh, half-written checks?
16: (laughs) (laughs) I think we're all all incredibly focused on the Philadelphia Theater Company run right now, making sure that that's top-notch. And, you know, they've been so generous in their support, so we want to make sure that, you know, this isn't treated as a workshop. We really are looking for this production to be the world premiere at Philadelphia and to be uh, of the caliber that does have the possibility to move on. And, of course, that's our hope. Is that the the show has a life outside of Philadelphia, and so that's what we're pushing for. But right now, I think we're really tunnel visioned on um, on Philadelphia being the best it can be. I'm hoping to get down there to Philadelphia
9: to see it. So cool! Thank you, thank you. Best of luck,
0: thank you. Oh, and we're gonna wrap up with one
9: more song. So uh, this, was this was actually was... the first song that we wrote for the show. Um, when Eric and Jordan contacted me about their idea for the show, they had given me this this lyric to write music to. So this was. This was the beginning. Yeah,
16: beginning of nerds. Although the lyrics have changed slightly since the one we, yeah. I think the one we gave you had uh, Steve Jobs touching boobs. <laughs> no, that's not in that one. No, <laughs> We've taken that one no,
9: out. No, I know. Oh, the one you gave me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There's no boobs in this. No one. boobs in this one. No, sadly. <laughs> no. All
0: right. So this is the reprise <laughs> of "I am just a nerd." Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you,
5: Bill. I loved you from the first moment I ever met you, and you destroyed my company. But when I look into your eyes, I don't see an evil man at all. I see the reflection of myself in your glasses. But within that reflection, I see another reflection. It's the reverse reflection from my own glasses. And within that reflection, I see you, the same shy, brilliant kid who sat next to me in AP calculus. I understand fully your feeling of strife. Your need to be a bully on the playground of life. But you have locked a kid away in locker 22. You've got to let him out today because that kid is you.
4: You once were the geek who was picked on in gym. But now you are the jock Who's making fun of him That could all change with just one word
2: I am just a nerd When I was young I would always get picked on Now I've grown all alone to someone strange And just like a pair of dirty underwear I should change When I think of all the kids Who are picked on just like me I want to tell them tonight Live on MSNBC Be proud of who you are Let your voice be heard Oh, I am just a nerd When a bully gives your neck A firm karate chop You can still rise
5: This is Bryce S. Weinert with a review of the new biography, John Osborne, The Many Lives of the Angry Young Man. With 1956's Look Back in Anger, John Osborne changed the shape of British theater and became one of the seminal voices of his generation. You know his works. The Entertainer, Tom Jones, and Charge of the Light Brigade now know the man. New York observers John Helpburn's new biography, John Osborne, The Many Lives of the Angry Young Man, presents a three-dimensional, sympathetic, and often disturbing view of Osborne's life. The biography makes liberal use of Osborne's private notebooks and interviews with the writer's dearest friends and attested enemies, sometimes shifting a bit too far into the lurid side of things, trying a confession from John Osborne's purported male lover for size. Halpern pulls from his own critical knowledge and love of theater to shape a realistic portrait of the legendary figure, Helpburn doesn't shy away from Osborne's tragedies, traumas, or travesties, but presents them lovingly, as a necessary motivator for Osborne's troubled works. Osborne's dying words were, I have sinned, and Helpburn helps us come to terms, and forgive that fact, a must-own for every literature and theater lover. This is Bryce S. Weinert for Broadway Bullet.
0: Pick that up at the Drama Bookshop on February 14th at 6 p.m. And you can attend a discussion and book signing with John Heilpern, moderated by David Finkel, Chief Drama Critic for Theater Mania. For more information, visit dramabookshop.com.
5: Top of the trades.
0: Tony Award winner Norbert Leo Butts has been cast in a new sitcom pilot for Fox. In Playing Chicken, the dirty rotten scoundrel star will play Jake, a conservative who, having been in an accident, is forced to live with his liberal brother Tim. Northwestern University has announced that award-winning Broadway director Michael Grief has replaced Oscar Eustace as the director of the American Musical Theatre Project's fourth new musical, The Boy in the Bubble. Boy is scheduled for production at the university's Evanston campus in late July 2007 at the Ethel M. Barber Theatre. Jane Krakowski will not star as a roller skating muse in the upcoming Broadway production of Xanadu. While casting was never officially announced for the upcoming Broadway musical Xanadu, there was speculation concerning the cast who did the recent workshop. Krakowski did participate, but will not be able to move forward with the project due to conflicts with 30 Rock, the NBC show in which she stars. The play Angry Young Women in Low-Rise Jeans with High-Class Issues, which we featured in Volume 20 of Broadway Bullet, is a hit and has been extended through February 24th, so you got more time to get your tickets. Top of the trades is sponsored by Broadwayworld.com. You can find out more information about all these stories by visiting Broadwayworld.com. You'll also find links to them from broadwaybullet.com. Curtain call. Well, that does it for the first episode of our new season. I'm pretty thrilled at everything we got. We got some great stuff for you next week, including an interview with Kevin Cahoon. I just want to take a quick reminder. We got a lot of people filling out the survey over the hiatus, but I'd still love to get a few more of you signing it out. So when you visit the website to sign up and register to win that pair of tickets to Grey Gardens, take a moment and fill out the survey, too. We'd love to hear from you, and I look forward to being with you again next week. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for taking the time to hop on board the Broadway Bullet with me.
9: My name and I'm in the can. Actually, the barfay
12: thing comes from my whole life. People just go culture vulture,
1: vodler. So it didn't take much though when he
2: um, proposed. I said yes.
5: It's
8: fun to know that those lines will stay in the show when other actors do it in the future.
13: The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment.
0: Fabulous story about their their cat Everybody. Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theatre majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere. But most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act. Even as freshmen, designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to BroadwayBullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.